Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk. This from cbc.ca, how a program from Kingston can alleviate isolation among Toronto's seniors. The program's founder, Christine McMillan, will host information sessions in Toronto today, March 6th, and also Thursday, March 8th. Catherine Croft always wished her building had somewhere downstairs where she could enjoy a cup of coffee. A constant thought, the 93-year-old said, was if there was only a place where we could just get out of our apartment. Many seniors in the building felt the same way. They were isolated. It's something Christine McMillan, 88, noticed while doing citywide research with the city's Council on Aging. What we uncovered, she says, was just a loneliness that you could cut with a knife. They dreaded when home care was not going to be enough, and they didn't have enough money to move into long-term care or if they did have sufficient money, they were worried. They were worried that they'd run out of money before they died. So, Macmillan created Oasis, a new model of care that would ease loneliness, bring services directly to seniors in their homes, and give them more autonomy over their own lives. Almost a decade after launching the program in Kingston, Macmillan has set her sights on Toronto, with a building already selected for the city's first Oasis. The idea behind the program is to bring services directly to buildings with a large percentage of seniors living in them. The residents themselves choose, develop, and manage programs that they'd like to use. Croft's Bath Road apartment, Macmillan's own building, became the program's first location after the landlord agreed to allow programs to run in the common areas. The program services about 60 seniors. They chose to implement catered and communal meals three times a week, exercise programs, on-site support workers, movies, and art classes. Eating alone all the time was an issue for them. Most of these people had severe mobility problems, so they weren't getting out much. Croft, who often enjoys the communal meal, said the program as a whole has made her life richer. You don't have to worry about isolation because, you know, you can go downstairs. Every day I don't have to worry that I'm going to be in my apartment all day long. You belong to a group. You have a family. Sue Lance, who is a policy expert and consultant specializing in aging, caregiving, and collaborative models of health and community care, believes the OASIS model gives seniors a more powerful voice and allows more customized solutions to their needs. I just love the project and love the people and thought it was a brilliant blueprint for the way we can move forward as boomers age. In other living situations, such as long-term care or retirement home, Services are delivered on a one-to-one basis and on a schedule that seniors can't usually control. The innovative part of Oasis is that some of the services are situated in the building for more hours of the day, and the individuals can tap into that resource as they need it. It's more flexible. It's also more reliable. Lance said bringing the services close to home is a common-sense solution to a number of problems. They've created this community and network of people who know one another and are willing to help each other. There's also financial incentives to the program. We know that normally people, when their health declines or if they're isolated, 
they start to need more health care services. And this allows people to stay in their home as opposed to seeking placements in a more expensive model like long-term care. According to Macmillan, the Oasis Kingston program costs around $130,000 per year. And if even a fraction of the re residents went to long-term care, it would have cost the government much more. Ontario's Ministry of Senior Affairs also seems to see the program's value. In November, they announced an investment of more than $15 million over two years to continue supporting what they refer to as naturally occurring retirement communities, such as Oasis. Toronto's own Oasis is in the works, and Macmillan, with the help of Open Lab, a think tank within the University Hospital Network, has already secured funding for the project from the Toronto Central Local Health Integration Network. It will be run where Macmillan now lives, uh, 400 Walmer Road. As mentioned, information sessions will be held at that building uh, today, but also Thursday, 10.30, and again at 1.30, for Croft, the expansion of the program is very exciting news. She says Oasis came to her when she was at a crossroads and didn't know if she could stay in her apartment. When Christine had a meeting and she stood up and said what she was going to do, I said to myself, this is going to change my life. And it did. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. We're now heading over to the Globe and Mail. Here's a title for you. Dealing with a prickly colleague can be good for your mental health. Do you agree? According to Bill Howitt, this is part of a series looking at micro skills, changes that employees can make to improve their health and their life at work and at home, and that employers can make to improve the workplace. Are there people in your life that you'd rather not have to interact with daily or on a regular basis? There's no intention for this to sound like a rhetorical question. It's meant to solicit a binary response, yes or no. If you answer yes, are you interested in exploring how to improve the situation? It's common to not want to be around people with whom we're not comfortable, provided the reasoning has nothing to do with psychological or physical safety, there can be a benefit to learning how to reframe these kinds of interactions. Being around a person you don't enjoy being with drains your mental energy. It impacts your mood and your emotions and even negatively impacts your mental health if you're not aware of what's happening. One way to change this is to reframe any relationship that's troubling you into something neutral or positive. Either option is better than constant negativity. The root cause for why someone doesn't want to be around another person may be linked to some misunderstanding, an unresolved conflict, maybe betrayal or rejection, personalities that maybe never clicked anyway or for some other reason. The cause is the daily reminder why they don't want to be around them, which reinforces the mental framework that prevents things from improving. Awareness. Changing how we perceive an interaction begins with acknowledging what we do, we think, and we feel. Often, being around a person we don't want to be with can lead to ineffective relationship coping habits. Worrying, avoiding, even dreading. When we're not aware, these interactions can also have a negative impact on the people we want to be around, which constrain desired relationships as well. Once you're aware, the next step is to determine if you're willing to change what you do and what you think. Accountability. Any relationship takes two to get along. All you can control are your own behaviors and your own thinking. Reframing a relationship begins with redefining it in your head. How the other person responds is up to them.
Once you decide to reframe the relationship, you can positively impact your interaction. You can also reduce the risk of bringing unwanted emotions and feelings into relationships you highly value and need, such as your wife, your husband, or your partner. Until you decide to reframe interactions from negative to positive, there's little chance that anything will change. Whether the other person is a family member, coworker, or community member, reframing a relationship provides an opportunity to change perspectives, attitudes, and behaviors. Action. The art of reframing relationships begins with a commitment to change the old relationship script and be open to release the past to create a better future. The following model is meant to be used one person at a time. Number one, be clear of consequences for not reframing. Define the emotional burden on you for not changing your mental frame. Write out a paragraph as to how difficult this relationship is, why it is, and how it impacts your behavior, your thinking, and your emotions. Number two, explore the value for reframing. List the benefits for you. Regardless of how the other person acts, how will changing your mental frame help you and the people you care about? Number three, redesign the interaction. You can do this step alone. However, by taking a risk and engaging the other person in an honest conversation about your desire to mend the relationship and why, it's rare that they would not know your feelings. They will react by embracing the opportunity, or they will not. The goal of this step is reframing how you will act around them, such as, I will not avoid this person, I will be more open to their ideas. Number four, implement the reframe. Start your new reframe with each interaction, which is a chance to practice. Being non-judgmental, open, and positive over time can have a positive impact on your mental health. It's healthier for the mind and body when we focus on the positive versus the negative. And lastly, number five, reinforce the reframe. Developing a new habit can take time, patience, and reinforcement. At the end of each day, reflect on the benefits for acting positive versus the old negative frame. In the end, your happiness will come from inside, not from the outside. That from Bill Howitt, Chief Research and Development Officer of Workforce Productivity at Morneau Chappelle. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Our last article for the news segment today, coming from businesswest.com. Conversations about mental health. This is an opinion piece by William A. Davila. The quoted phrases, a silent epidemic, the great unspoken health issue of our time, an invisible illness, a hidden crisis. From the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, to New York Times Magazine, the issue of mental health and its impact on human lives is getting lots of attention, and it's well-deserved. A mental illness is defined as a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder, It can vary in impact ranging from no impairment to mild, moderate, and even severe impairment. In 2016, there were an estimated 44.7 million adults aged 18 or older in the U.S. alone with a mental illness. And up to 1 in 5 children living in the U.S. show signs or symptoms of a mental health concern in any given year. Yet, nearly 80% of the children who need services won't get them. This has to stop. When not feeling well physically, we don't delay our need for medical treatment or advice. So when we are not feeling well emotionally, or our children may not be feeling their emotional best, why is the decision to seek assistance less than 
expeditious. It was over a casual lunch recently that a colleague of mine shared a story of her teenage son who was having a difficult time managing anxiety related to school. He has friends and gets good grades, but anxiety was keeping him from feeling right. It got to the point where my colleague and her spouse realized it was time to seek help from a professional. The problem was not just going to go away. Her son immediately objected. Why? He was worried that other people would think he was weak if they found out he was seeing a therapist. He didn't want to believe that asking for help is actually a sign of strength. It took some parental persuasion, but he agreed to talk with a therapist, an objective professional who isn't a family member, and ultimately it helped right away. The young man learned more about what he was feeling and why, which has made him more confident and at ease. Working with a therapist has been a game changer. So, how do we collectively build a supportive community where young people feel comfortable having open and honest conversations about their emotional well-being. There are things we all can do. Number one, educate ourselves and our communities. Invite local mental health experts to speak at a group, a parenting meeting, your congregation, or any community gathering. Ask your children, your students, the young people in your life, how are you? And then really listen to their response. If you're sensing something might not be right, Trust your instincts and ask more questions. Continue to ask until you get a positive sense that things are okay. Set a positive example. Take care of yourself and make your own emotional fitness a priority in your life. Be inclusive. Mental health does not discriminate. It can affect us all. The sooner we destigmatize mental health, the sooner that people will be able to ask for it and seek it out. That from William Davila. In businesswest.com, you are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the World Wide Web, CFRC.ca. Let's get personal. Our Talk feature interview. Now return to part two of my interview with Mike and Kaylee from Keys Job Center, discussing their youth mentoring program. So a big part of our show here on Talk is really providing resources, people's stories, their triumphs, their challenges in terms of how their mental and emotional health can be improved. What do you find is the most prevalent mental and emotional health issue that the youth are dealing with, and how does the mentoring program help them with that? Right. So about... 50% of our clients, um, what we found is that they self-identify a mental health issue, um, and that's without even being asked. So um, it's possible that that number could be higher. Um, And the most prevalent um, mental health issue is social anxiety by far, Um, also depression as well. Um, And we've also had clients mention PTSD, ADHD, um, autism, Asperger's, and learning disabilities. We don't offer mental health services, um, you know, like a professional mental health service like counseling. Okay. Um, if, if it's apparent that our client needs professional help, then we would definitely encourage and refer, you know, to professional services. 
and, and also uh, we should mention that our mentors are definitely not counselors. Um, but with that said, um, mentoring can definitely help because it, imp it, it improves your um, social and emotional development. Um, and that's just not us saying that. Like, um, there are authors out there who, who've published on this, especially one that we read uh, named Jean Rhodes, who's kind of a prestigious expert on youth mentoring. Okay. Mentors, basically, they're not expected, of course, to be experts in the field. What they're there to give is not expert advice or, or counseling. What they're there to, to give to young people in this program is, um, like I mentioned last week, is TAU, so time, affection, and optimism, or time, attention, and optimism. So basically, they're just there to hang out and have conversations and be great listeners and, and talk to, to you, which in, like, in the first place kind of has uh, a really therapeutic effect. You know, if there's something going on in your life um, that's troubling you, it just feels good to talk to somebody about it, right? Especially somebody that you're kind of getting to know and you're starting to trust as time goes by. Sure. And they're also, in that way, kind of a sounding board, right? Sometimes when we have a problem, it's just in our head, and, and it just kind of cycles in there if we don't have anybody to talk to. So um, a mentor is, you know, can kind of help you talk out your problems, and as you're explaining them, they almost start making a little bit more sense, like problem-solving mode, right? And you might even come up with the answer yourself when the mentor is not even saying anything. They're just listening to you. Sure. So we, we also give them some coaching skills in the training that they do with us. So they are in that mindset of listening to what their mentees have to say and also kind of directing them to their own problems, asking the right problem-solving questions like, how do you think you could fix this? Or have you explored um, such and such a resource? Things like that. Yeah. Um, we also talk about the Pygmalion effect in mentoring. So the Pygmalion effect, basically what that means is if I think you're really great or if I think a young person is really great and I treat them like that, the young person will kind of internalize that idea that I'm a great person, you know. And you can really see the, the effects of that when it's the other way around. If a teacher or a parent or an authority treats a young person like they are not so great, then that young person might actually start to believe it uh, and act accordingly. Yeah. A mentor is optimistic and looks for the good in, in their mentees, which, of course, there's lots of, of good things. And they focus on that kind of idea of like, hey, you're a great person. You know, I really believe in you. It's kind of contagious and the mentees internalize that, that feeling as well. Yeah. Hopefully. So a mentor can also help you with your relationships a little bit. So they are there to have a positive professional relationship with you. For a young person, this might be a new way to relate to adults. You know, if, they're, if they haven't had a lot of positive experiences in the past, having a good relationship with a person who, who shows that they care mm -hmm. um, can kind of show them a little bit about uh, what to expect in a relationship. Sure. Um, or, or new things that they could expect and also new ways new ways to interact. Sometimes parents are a little bit intimidated by their children having a mentor because they think that maybe they're getting replaced or something like that. Yeah. But it's, um, again, going back to Gene Rope, it's been proven that mentoring does nothing of the sort. It actually really tends to improve relationships with parents because as the young person develops this relationship with their mentor, then their relationship skills get better and um, that helps them to have it helps with all of their other relationships as well. Yeah. That feels good. You know, having positive relationships makes you feel good. So definitely, you know, helps, helps you with your, your mental health. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so a mentor is also a role model. So they can also model like 
you know, habits that might be beneficial to mental health, like just self-regulation, uh, being optimistic, problem-solving, trying to eliminate bad habits and replace them with good ones, stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah, and they can just kind of help you to search and connect with resources. So again, if, if a professional professional support is what you need, maybe you're going to go and check out some organization here in Kingston, but you're a little bit nervous about going and asking questions. Sometimes a mentor can go with you. Yeah. So, um, you know, they can just kind of be, a, be that friend to go and explore resources with and give you that little boost of confidence that, that you can do it and, and kind of hold you accountable, check in with you and, and uh, see, see how you're doing with uh, changes that you might want to make in your life. I would love for you guys to comment on as, on as well. I'm just thinking of this in the moment. I know you're not mental health experts per se, but you certainly come across a lot of young people with dealing with a variety of things. So I'm sure as that continues to happen, you learn a little bit more about the various angles of mental health and emotional well-being. Why do you think, from your vantage point, anxiety, and I see this a lot in the work that I do with not only young people, but adults, why anxiety levels are off the charts across most sectors of the population? If I could take this one, so, I mean, I have lots of theories about this. I think about this a lot. But I think, like, just to be very honest, a lot of it has to do with the root causes of um, some of the challenges that people face in our society these days that I talked about earlier, you know, we live in a capitalist society, <laughs> and youth, and I think everybody these days is pretty aware that, you know, we have, like, a lot of looming challenges globally, like, climate change is very much in the consciousness of people, um, the awareness that there's not as much economic opportunity as there has been for future, for previous generations, um, you know, there's a lot of, we're burdened with debt, we're constantly inundated with consumerism. Social media is a huge thing, like, you know, especially with the youth that we work with, they're constantly comparing themselves to, like, these curated versions of other people's lives. Um, so when you're on Instagram or Snapchat and you see, like, everybody's having fun and they're just, like, laughing and partying all the time and, you know, or people are going on vacations and, like, why is, why is my life not perfect, you know? Nobody shares, not, not nobody, but it's, it's, um, there are some advocates that talk about depression and anxiety and mental health or, you know, like their struggle with like eating disorders or poverty. Like sometimes people do share those things, but typically not. Um, typically people share like the positive versions of their lives and their stories. And when people, you know, we compare ourselves to that. So when you constantly, um, think that you have to be perfect and you have to like have this perfect job and perfect life and like all of these boxes checked off and you're not there because we live in a society that actually is not providing those opportunities for people. You know, we don't have permanent employment. The average debt load is like $40,000 of like consumer debt and educational debt, you know, mm. like these, these realities are so incongruent with the image that we're supposed to um, aspire to and, and that we're supposed to project. Mm-hmm. So that's like incredibly de- debilitating. Um, so I think that that contradiction for sure is a big part of it. And then, yeah, just also, you know, we, we have a lot of people who um, just struggle with, a, they struggle with a lot, you know, like there's, um, we were talking earlier about indigenous populations and some of the challenges with um, being Indigenous in this nation. And, you know, even though Indigenous folks are, are a small proportion of the population, like, that reality is, you know, there's a lot of um, similarities between other people, you know, people in poverty um, that that have to struggle to find a place to live and to find food. And 
um, you know, to compete with their peers in that way of like, you know, looking presentable, finding good jobs, um, going to school, getting an education, and knowing that that's what's expected of you and not being able to reach that potential because of these systemic barriers and these like structural challenges is obviously that's going to impact your mental health like very, very significantly. I like the, the phrase that you used when you said these, you know, curated versions of ourselves. I think that's so well put. And the challenge that it poses for us, whether you're eight years old or 65 with social media and just being so connected to all this stuff all the time, if, if that's what we're choosing to do, is reconciling this need for belonging, which never goes away, uh, no matter what stage of life you're at, reconciling this need for belonging and yet creating healthy boundaries for yourself so that you're not always just chasing things. Do you know what I mean? Oh my gosh, yeah, for sure. And I think the need of belonging, you know, like people talk about this all the time, that social media and, and technology and the internet has you know, widen our perspectives and widen our horizons. And, you know, now with VR, you can travel all over the world, you know, virtually. But we're so disconnected from each other. You know, communicate, the ability to communicate, to build relationships with people is a skill that actually is, it's still in demand. You know, when we talk about careers like that, communication is the most important skill. But, we don't know how to do it anymore, you know? We don't know how to communicate with each other. We don't know how to build relationships. And that's why I think our program is really important and also why people don't, like, it's kind of, it's confusing because people are like, oh, you're just focusing on the relationship. Yeah, well, the relationship, the ability to build a relationship will serve you in so many ways, you know, like that connection. Um, and also what you talked about about, also maintaining personal boundaries. Like, it's a huge practice um, in the mentoring program for mentors to practice healthy boundaries and for the mentees to develop healthy boundaries. You know, like, we have all these ideas of relationships through the media that are very um, codependent, very toxic, but they're touted as, like, super healthy relationships that you have to strive for, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, a lot of mentors and mentees, they have to really discover what their boundaries are in this program. Um, and, you know, I'm not talking about, like, romantic stuff, but, you know, like, when it comes to mental health, for example, you know, that person that you have a mentor and that mentor is not a counselor, they're not trained as a counselor, but you maybe, you know, maybe the young person sees them as fulfilling that role for them. And it's, it's a process to understand, no, that's not, that's not this person's role. There are other services for that. And also, if you use this person as a counselor, you might actually sabotage your relationship with them. You know, you might miss out on something so much more beautiful than a counseling relationship. So if you, if you use that person kind of as that resource, then, you know, you're, you're missing the complexity of what a relationship can look like. Sure. So I found David's story uh, very instructive from last week to our listeners. If you weren't tuned into part one, I encourage you to go to the archives at cfrc.ca search for uh, Wednesday, February the 28th at 4 p.m. You can listen to the story of David that was shared in terms of what he found when he got paired up with his, his mentor and, and what they learned about each other and what Mike and Kaylee learned about the program and just a very, very en enlightening kind of situation. But I found David's story very instructive in terms of not just identifying what you want to do in life, but also ruling out things that are not a good fit. What else could you guys comment on in terms of the real outcomes that you're trying to create for your youth mentoring program? One of the biggest things that we see, and you know, again, this is kind of 
um, it's not as concrete. You know, we can't necessarily um, share this with the government and say, look, you know, we we um, had this quantitative improvement. But building confidence is by far the most, um, like, across the board. That is what we see in the youth that we work with, um, whether it's confidence in just talking to another human, whether it's confidence in talking specifically about their mental health with a little bit more clarity and groundedness. Um, an understanding of, like, the challenges that they're facing, or confidence in, you know, just themselves and their abilities to kind of explore things or develop their skills, um, you know, take chances, take risks. The, the confidence piece is really where we see the biggest improvement. And kind of what I was talking about earlier, you know, just the ability to have a relationship with an adult you know, that's not an authority figure, that doesn't have any expectations for, you know, the outcomes of, of you as a young person, you know, again, that shows is modeling what different relationships can look like in this in our society where we don't have a lot of um, examples and we don't have a lot of lived experience of what relationships can look like um, outside of romantic or authority-based ones. Sure. And I will share a little, a brief synopsis of, of one of the youth that we work with. So we were working with a young person um, from community living. So he was, um, he has a number of different disabilities, including Asperger's and um, very low kind of uh, reading and writing comprehension. Um, but he is, and because of that, you know, maybe not because of that, but in addition to that, um, he's also got, like, pretty severe anxiety and pretty severe depression, which really um, results in just a lot of isolation. Um, but he's extremely passionate about Kingston, about the history of this place, um, our tourism industry. Um, he's also very spiritual. He's, like, super into the Haunted Walk. Um, and he's also uh, part Indigenous and has been exploring kind of his indigenous roots and kind of settler, you know, settler reconciliation with indigenous peoples. Um, and so we had, a, we had a difficult time trying to find a mentor for him. Um, you know, I reached out to a number of different people and um, just couldn't, you know, nothing was really working. So he was on our wait list for quite some time, I think about six months. And then we finally found someone who was a teacher and an anthropologist very, you know, very interested in learning about history and local, um, just like what's going on locally. Um, and he took a great interest in learning about um, his interests, his spirituality, just listening to him, supporting him, encouraging him. Um, and his mentor has been a really uh, huge person in his life. Um, and what Patrick says about his experience is that, you know, he's really seen some significant changes in his life. Um, he feels like he's very connected to his mentor, that he's known him most of his life, um, that, you know, just by listening to him, just by um, providing him the space and the consistency of meeting, you know, once, once a week or once every two weeks, that he is able to learn through new things and, you know, um, develop his, his skills and his confidence in, in himself, exploring new things and taking big risks. What he told me is that it's had a huge impact on his mental health. Um, you know, his doctor kind of prescribed, like, you need to get out of the house and and really just, like, do things that you like, and he couldn't do that. Um, it was just really, really challenging and intimidating for him before he had a mentor. 
and, you know, with his mentor, you know, they go to different tourism sites in Kingston, and they talk about life, and they talk about history a lot, and they're getting to that place of doing career exploration, but even just that connection for Patrick has meant that he is able to, you know, he's very, very um, articulate about his mental health challenges, he's very open, very honest very confident and these are things that he couldn't do before like he said you know before this program I would need other people to communicate for me I couldn't do it myself um, he said that he was very quiet very subdued and um, he just he couldn't relate to other people mm-hmm. and through this program he's really been able to, to open so many doors for himself I think that that story to me really speaks about the power of a mentor that you know you can come to this program with lots of challenges, and if we do it right and we find the right person, then um, then you can really there can be some really incredible transformation. We really support the mentoring match for five months, um, and then sometimes they reestablish for another five months. So after that ten month period, you know we usually say, okay, um, you know now you're kind of on your own. We develop like a little bit of a plan for what they're going to do afterwards. And we really, like, the growth that we see is actually after the mentoring partnership has kind of formally ended. That's where, you know, it's, it's a long-term impact. You know, that experience for five to ten months is really important for, you know, career exploration and building confidence. And it just, it builds naturally after you've had that experience, that foundational experience. Mm. Um, so some of the outcomes, we don't we don't get to see them. You know, the mentors don't get to see them. The mentors are like... They have no idea the impact that they've made. You know, the mentors are like, I, I don't think I did anything for this young person. And the young person's like, you changed my life. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. and we, we really get to see that, like, after a couple months after they finished the program. Well, before I have you remind our, our listeners how to get in touch with you and your, and your great program, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Thank awesome. you for letting us talk about this program. Yeah, I mean, there's other stuff that we we could mention, but I, I think that we've given you a really solid understanding. So yeah. we're just really grateful to, to talk about this program and kind of share our experiences. Yeah, yeah. and maybe uh, I think we mentioned it last time, but um, all of this relationship building is really, really essential and really the foundation of all of the success um, that comes from youth mentoring. But, of course, we do the career exploration as well. If somebody out there is interested in getting into our program because they really want to meet a doctor or, or I don't know, a lawyer or, or some profession that they'd like to learn about, that is also something that we do. We just we really believe so much in, in the power of the relationship that sometimes we give more weight to it. But career exploration is also a big part of what we do. And if there's, if there's a career that you're interested in getting into and maybe you want to uh, mentor with a sick um, profession, then we, can, uh, we, we would be happy to meet with you and, and see what we can do. So I'm putting this out to the community, whoever's listening right now, if you want to create a positive and meaningful and lasting impact in a, a young person's life, here's your chance. You don't have to hike to the Himalayas. You don't have to donate $1,000. You just have to provide some time and some quality care right here in your community. And that can go a long way to changing other people's lives, but also changing your own life. So how can people get in touch with you? The easiest way is to just call Keys Job Center and ask for Kaylee or Mike at the Insight Youth Mentoring Program. 613-546-5559. Just ask reception for Kaylee or Mike. We also are online, www.keys.ca. 
look for the tab that says Job Seekers, and in the drop-down menu, Under 30, and you'll see our program in there. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the World Wide Web, CFRC.ca. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. Keith Richards on reuniting the Rolling Stones and going sober. This from The Telegraph. Keith Richards hasn't had a drink since Christmas 2017. The legendarily hard-living rock and roll icon sounds almost reluctant to admit to sobriety. He says, I'm not saying I'm definitely off all this stuff, he protests. In six months' time, I may be on it again, but at the moment, for a couple of months, I haven't touched it. When I ask how he is finding abstinence, he chuckles ruefully, it's novel, and speaks as if his vocal cords are coated in thick layers of fur but he insists that cigarettes and coffee are the only real vices he has left. He is impressively disdainful of the prescription drugs rife among a younger generation, such as Xanax and Percocet. Drugs are not interesting these days. They are very institutionalized and bland. And anyway, I've done them all, he says. His laughter is rich, throaty, and infectious, constantly bubbling up to shade his remarks with mischief. Richards has always been the Stones' most entertaining conversationalist, brutally honest and quick-witted. On the recent spate of retirements of many of his musical contemporaries, he says, More room for us! On Sir Elton John's announcement of a three-year farewell tour, he chuckles, After three years on the road with Elton, you would want to retire too. I'll take his word for it. Richards had a long feud with Elton, However, today he's in a forgiving mood. Richard says of Elton, he's a lovable old dear. He's softening with age. But on the question of whether he'll miss Elton when he's gone, he is unmoved. Not at all. Asked what it would take to bring the Rolling Stones' long run to an end, Richard's is unequivocal. Somebody keeling over. Drummer Charlie Watts has claimed that it wouldn't bother him if the Stones called it a day. But Richard's insists there is no thought of retirement. There's never ever been a word about it muttered among ourselves. I guess the day is obviously going to come someday, but not in the near future. We're all looking forward to doing what we're doing, especially back in Blighty. What he's referring to is the Stones' upcoming stadium tour of Britain in the summer, their first UK show since Glastonbury and Hyde Park in 2013, and ultimately their first tour in more than 10 years. We're playing home turf, so there's a certain extra glow. But it's always a pleasure to get up there again, especially with this band. I think the boys are playing better than ever. Maybe as experience, we seem to be able to pace ourselves right. I'm blessed to work with some of the best players ever. That never gets old. There's a new Stones album in the works to follow their fantastic 2016 covers album, Blue and Lonesome. Richards is calling from a studio in New York where he's awaiting the arrival of Mick Jagger to work on new songs. 
Mixed great. We're getting on very well, says Richards. He'll be here in a half hour, and we'll be sitting face to face, making music, like always. Jagger and Richards met as schoolboys in 50s Dartford, and have been the creative leaders and songwriting heart of the Stones since 1962. They haven't always got along, though, and there was a particularly unpleasant time following the publication of Richards' acclaimed autobiography, Life, in 2010, with its disparaging remarks about Jagger. For a while, it seemed touch and go whether the Stones would ever play together again, but the acclaim afforded their shows since getting back on the road in 2012 seems to have helped thaw relationships. Mick and I live off of the fire between us, says Richards, who is effusively warm about all his bandmates. We were made for each other. It's like putting on an old glove, man, you know? They don't hang out much between engagements. We can stay away from each other happily for months, but it's the gaps in between that make it more interesting. You come back fresher. When we do get together, we rehearse very hard. We soak ourselves in it. I've seen the Stones four times in recent years, and each show has been extraordinary, hitting the kind of sinuous heights that first established the claim to be the world's greatest rock and roll band. When I ask if the relative sobriety of Richards and fellow guitarist Ronnie Wood has contributed to sharpened playing, Richards says, Well, all things are relative. Insobriety produced some amazing stuff too. Richards' personal favorite Stones period, God, he says that's hard being asked to choose, it's really like cutting babies in half, is 1968-72. to 72. Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile, we really hit the spot. That, of course, was also a period when Richards was becoming increasingly addicted to hard drugs, gaining a reputation as the most elegantly wasted human being on earth. The Stones in the 70s ruled the roost during Rock's most notorious period of conspicuous debauchery in the wake of the Me Too movement shining a harsh light on the treatment of women in the entertainment industry. I wonder if Richards has any qualms about past behavior. You'd have to ask the ladies, says Richards. I've had no complaints. In fact, Richards has always been a bit of a one-woman man. He was with model and actress Anita Pallenberg for over 10 years and has been married to former model Patty Hansen for 34 years. They have two daughters together. Pallenberg, one of the great loves of his life, died last year. I miss her dearly, says uh, Richards, momentarily somber, before suddenly laughing again. Long may she not rest in peace, because she hates peace. Here are the Stones with a song. This is... Jumpin' Jack Flash. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. So many deaths and retirements among Keith Richards' contemporaries, it seems that the rock and roll era is coming to an end. Young guitar bands find it hard to thrive in the charts. Gibson guitar manufacturers were recently revealed to be on the verge of bankruptcy. Richards remains optimistic, though. I don't think eras end. They sort of fold and meld into each other. If rock and roll is at an end, when was the beginning? It's part of the blues. It's built into the musical framework of the world. If we're talking about fashion and all the other things, everything was rock for a while. You can't expect that to go on forever, but we'll see. We're going to be playing to several million people in the coming months, so I wouldn't call that dead. Richards doesn't particularly keep up with new music. Even as a kid, he never listened to what was pop. He was always listening to old stuff thanks to his mother. 
But he admires Lady Gaga, comparing her to Barbara Streisand and Ed Sheeran, of whom he says, Nice voice, nice songs. As for his views on his contemporaries, Quincy Jones recently disparaged the musicianship of the Beatles, the Stones' great 60s rivals, but Richards is not persuaded. It was their songwriting which was the real apex of what they did, rather than their musicianship, which was definitely adequate, he laughs, perhaps aware he is damning with faint praise. Their vocal harmonies were very strong. Some very interesting stuff went on there. So without poo-pooing our Quincy, leave the Beatles alone, you know, says Richards. Richards famously reads a lot of history books and listens to the blues, jazz, and classical music. Does he keep up with politics and current affairs? Well, he says it's very difficult not to these days. They've got a president here that's pretty funny, and I don't mean ha-ha. Trump used a Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, on his campaign trail, continuing to walk out to it even after the Stone asked him to stop. That's about the level of the guy's manners, notes Richards disparagingly. Although Jagger was knighted in 2003, Richards has no expectations of joining him on the honors list. My views are well known to the people that doled him out. He denies there is anything malicious in his mockery of Sir Mick, and for that matter, Sir Elton, Sir Paul, Sir Rod, Sir Cliff, Sir Tom, and Sir Ray, though he can't resist adding, I thought sirs were for doing some brave deed in battle, not singing songs. Here are the stones from their 1969 album Let It Bleed with can't always get what you want on talk cfrc 101.9 fm the rolling stones with you can't always get what you want you're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Stones will play six UK dates later this year, kicking off at West Ham's London Stadium May 22nd before wrapping up at Twickenham Stadium on June the 19th. These gigs form part of a larger European tour, which kicks off at Dublin's Croke Park on May 17th before wrapping everything up in Warsaw, Poland on July the 8th. Any thoughts, however, that this could be the Stones' last set of gigs or last tour, quickly dismissed by frontman Mick Jagger. He says, you know, there's going to come a point when we don't want to do this anymore, but for whatever reason, I'm not thinking about that this summer. The fact that the Stones are still together and planning to do these large stadium concerts 56 years after they first formed is a truly remarkable thing indeed. What have you committed to for 56 years. Maybe you're not that old. You haven't had a chance to develop the loyalty and the sense of connection with another or with a path that you're on to accomplish something so remarkable. But in this day and age, it's becoming less and less, whether it's the divorce rate or the frequency with which people switch jobs. We're a culture that quickly moves on. That staying power, that Resolve to move through differences, whether it's with coworkers or uh, differences within a, a marriage or a relationship, it takes a lot of courage to stick with something. I see with a lot of people who are pursuing a dream, and I've certainly gone through this myself at various points along the journey where, where you meet some roadblocks, and instead of 
viewing those roadblocks as just necessary elements along the path to the development of your character and your capacity for manifesting the dream, we instead dismiss them as reasons for not continuing. And so we stop and we hop onto something else only to find that more obstacles are popping up along the way, maybe similar to the ones that we just left. Often it's only after doing this a series of several times that we begin to establish that, you know what, there's a pattern in my life. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. but oftentimes it takes a series of failures before we begin to view our life from a larger vantage point, the long view as I like to call it, and see that there are these patterns. And only upon seeing that there's patterns are we in a better position to be able to change those patterns if that's something we desire to choose. So good on the stones for making it through 56 years and continuing to make music and be creative and just do what they do. They will leave behind a major legacy in the music world. And uh, I put this out to you. If there's challenges that you're facing within something that you're working on, maybe it's your job, maybe it's a relationship, I compel you to dig deeper and find the courage and the resolve to get to that place of of loyalty and commitment and the beauty that offers you that often is not obvious in the earlier stages and it's the fruits of that labor that can only be experienced later on. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgoche.com. That's info at timothydgauther.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.